insist that you produce proof of age in order to get access to porn in the UK. This strikes me, this is just the last straw. This is unacceptable. The end of a free so, society. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, when they came for the right, I didn't object, but now. <laughs> how, do, how does that work? You, 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 you give your name and uh, passport to, um, you know, Pornhub and uh, they treat it uh, uh, with due uh, uh, sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> the age verification is one that I will not defend because it is a abominably dumb idea. Welcome to episode 260 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy and government, uh, and we are speaking for exactly no one but ourselves, and frankly, probably not even ourselves three weeks from today. So I'm joined today by Matthew Hyman, Senior Fellow at the National Security Institute at George Mason, formerly with the Justice Department, by Paul Rosenzweig, back at last by popular demand, founder of Red Branch Consulting, formerly Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy at DHS. Uh, Paul, great to have you back. Great to be back, Stuart. Thanks for having me. Okay. And Nick Weaver, uh, who is uh, uh, all things computer at UC Berkeley. Uh, Nick, great to have you back. Thanks again. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record uh, for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer and the host of today's program, as well as chief provocateur. I have to say, I, I tweeted this uh, um, over the weekend. Uh, I gave a speech at INSA, which is the uh, uh, Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and they gave me a speaker badge. And then on the bottom of the speaker badge was an additional uh, uh, label, said troublemaker, which I thought, uh, even though they spelled my name wrong, that was still the most accurate uh, badge I've ever gotten from a, a conference. So I am the chief uh, troublemaker for today's podcast. Uh, uh, why don't we start with the Sri Lankan government's response to the Easter bombings, uh, which is basically to suspend um, uh, social media in uh, uh, Sri Lanka. Matthew? Yeah, uh, there was a story in uh, this morning's Wall Street Journal that talked about the response from the government. Among other things, they arrested a bunch of people, but then they also suspended social media in the country. And I know, Stuart, uh, you and I discussed this before recording that this was out of the Arab Spring playbook where some of those governments did the same thing, apparently. Yeah, what's different, though, is that when it happened in Arab Spring, uh, all of the tech companies says, well, screw you, you know, right. you can't stop us. So we're going we're gonna to change the world. And now the tech companies and, and the West is all, uh, yeah, of course you're going to suspend those uh, evil social medias. Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is a theme that we've talked about on this podcast in the past, and that is, I think, the internet publication regimes, it's no longer based on what Silicon Valley thinks it should be. It's going to be localized to each country figuring out what the regime should be, which again is the way things were with newspapers and magazines 40 years ago. The other thing that strikes me is that as this practice becomes wider spread, I suspect a lot of repressive regimes around the world will use the same play for emergencies and so-called emergencies. Oh yes. I, well, this is really this is a this is an enormous victory for Putin that people don't 
give him credit for. Because the other thing that happened in 2011 was uh, the U.S. government was enthusiastic about a set of demonstrations and Twitter mobbing of Putin during the election to say that uh, he uh, he was corrupt and and stealing the election, uh, and there was he was at some risk uh, uh, as a result of the social media messaging. Uh, and he turned around and said, you know, sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, uh, and I'm going to give it to the gander good and hard. Uh, and uh, the uh, attacks on Hillary Clinton using social media have spawned an enormous attack on social media for having let that happen. Uh, and uh, we'll never go back to the world where people say, oh, if you've cut off the internet, then you've lost. Right. Yeah. Speaking of cutting off the internet, uh, DNS hijacking goes on and on and on and on. And uh, Cisco's Talos group had a pretty good story suggesting that uh, even getting caught is not stopping people from launching DNS, man-in-the-middle hijacking attacks. Nick, what's going on there? So it looks like there's a major actor that may be different from another actor that's been attributed to Iran targeting Middle Eastern institutions. And the MO is you take over the DNS provider, the registrar or provider, redirect the DNS authorities to your system. Now you can basically say, I am that computer. And they get around the whole cryptography because the weakness in all the SSL certificates primarily is that they are based on the notion of you've proved that you control this domain. So if you can hijack the domain, you can create new cryptographic certificates and just fully man in the middle. And then once you man in the middle th forms where there's logins and the like, you then get people's credentials. You transition directly into the institution through the VPN and go from there. And so this is a very powerful attack to leverage or to obtain user credentials and then leverage it in. And it's pretty brazen, but at the same time, it's actually pretty hard to detect as it's going on. So they, and these attacks were aimed at, essentially, they, it sounds like they compromise registrars and registries to change the internal record uh, for uh, what machine should be responding on behalf of a particular entity. And then they targeted entities that were, you know, the Mukhabarat for uh, uh, Syria or somebody like that, some serious government player, and all of that government player's communications with the internet were going through something that was man-in-the-middle by this uh, brazen uh, uh, attacker. And once you have the man-in-the-middle, any remote workers, etc., who log in through the man in the middle, you now have their credentials. So you don't just man in the middle the internet, it's you man in the middle the internet as a stepping stone to attack your target's internal network. So if, if, if it strikes me that this is a problem that ICANN should have been addressing. Uh, they are in charge of telling registrars and registries what they should do in order to uh, identify uh, the machines that are interacting with the uh, uh, the internet. 
the problem is that changing DNS entries is normal behavior. Ah, so yes, people do somebody it all the time. going to, yeah. So the only person who knows that the change of DNS authorities is anomalous is the victim institution. Which ought to be able to run tests to see if its stuff is going to the right place. If, if stuff, you know, traffic aimed at a particular company ought to go to that company's server, uh, servers. It knows what servers it owns, and it ought to see uh, the incoming traffic coming to it. They obviously need somebody who will test that. But how yeah. hard can that be? Uh, the problem is, is the internet is weirder than you think, even okay. when you include the effect of the internet is weirder than you think. Right. You would like to believe that monitoring your own authority servers is reasonably easy, but there's always weirdnesses that come up. Uh, the weirdness will go on, uh, uh, guaranteed. Uh, all right. Uh, the EU Commission has come out actually in response to a question from the European Parliament about Kaspersky. Uh, originally, uh, the e EU uh, Parliament had said, well, uh, Kaspersky is a known bad uh, security product. Uh, and then was, the commission was asked to clarify its remarks by a member of parliament. And it said, actually, we have no information about Kaspersky was very odd, was written up in the most biased article I have ever seen, talking about uh, uh, a red scare and the like. Uh, and it isn't clear that uh, the commission really took it back. It just said, we don't have any evidence for that statement, uh, but, you know, maybe we will someday. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I think that says less about the risk, uh, the lack of risk from Kaspersky and more about uh, the incompetence of the European Commission, uh, it, which is it bottomless. Isn't so you're right. It, that, that is that is that is a, a that is a deep subject indeed. <laughs> it, well, I mean, let, let let's be honest, right? The Commission doesn't have any uh, intelligence collection resources. Um, they're all with the member states. The Commission doesn't have any active law enforcement. That's all with the member states and with cooperative arrangements. It is utterly unsurprising to me that the commission purporting to have authority over um, European-wide security measures um, actually is basing its judgment on the actions of others. Uh, you know, the, the Americans have banned Kaspersky, so we will as well. The Germans are suspicious. We are suspicious as well. But when push comes to shove, they actually admit that we're really just a bunch of uh, bureaucrats with no actual information. Uh, that doesn't mean that Kaspersky is safe. Far, quite to the contrary, um, everything that we've learned about Kaspersky since uh, the the American ban suggests that it was a justified skepticism. And uh, I, you know, I just think that the European Union once again demonstrates that it's processes are not up to up to the task and not suitable for purpose. Well, what's the uh, the likelihood that uh, whoever was criticizing Kaspersky discovered that he was being investigated? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I, well, uh, yeah, it was speculation, but I'm I'm not uh, I'm not at all skeptical of that either, right? Yeah. You know? So this is this this is this this is the story that says uh, there are people going around uh, asking folks who are uh, engaged in um, the. Um, 
criticizing Kaspersky, what the basis for that is, offering them contracts and then having long liquid lunches with them in which they are encouraged to say that, uh, say who has been paying them to criticize Kaspersky. The tactics were very much like the tactics of somebody who uh, was looking to uh, find critics of uh, NSO uh, a group and get them to say embarrassing things. Uh, what what can we make of this uh, this latest uh, um, uh, episode? Well, one thing we can make of it certainly is that you know those aren't the tactics of a company uh, that is completely innocent of all wrongdoing, right? I mean, if you were truly concerned about your your public relations image and you were innocent, you're, you you wouldn't be engaging in subterfuge that would add to your to the problems in your public relations image. It also seems to me to prove that uh, some of the NGO working groups like uh, Citizens Lab in Canada are starting to actually hurt. And so the uh, the adversaries at NSO and now at Kaspersky are, are kind of taking it to uh, to the next level in, in an attempt so far unsuccessful to, to discredit their critics. Uh, this is this is repeats what I've been saying for several years, which is that the shady world of cybersecurity is quickly becoming another playground for intelligence community actors that is you know, magnified by the difficulties of attribution. It's going to be an interesting game within game within games. Yeah, so uh, you're you're raising the prospect that people will start doxing uh, uh, their critics uh, or paying people uh, deniably to dox critics, uh, and that certainly could happen. I, I do think you're right that the desire to hire folks who do this is perfectly understandable. If you're a company, you think your whole business is under attack and, and you think it's unfair and that the critics are all, or many of them self-motivated, have motivations that are not uh, particularly pure. You want to get that story out. Uh, but as soon as you start looking for that story in this way, you're guaranteeing that sooner or later, it's all going to blow up on you. I, I think that's right. And uh, so this is just another way in which the the kind of hail fellow well met everybody in the internet's going to grab hands and sing kumbaya vision of the 1990s is is falling apart <laughs> yeah but entertainingly at least uh, the iranian hackers have have gotten i think from crowdstrike uh, a set of kitten names uh, and i thought maybe they after this exploit we ought to be talking about naked kitten <laughs> yes. So apparently the Iranians are on the receiving end of a shadow brokers that somebody, we don't know who, claiming to be an insider, has been releasing tools, releasing docs on individuals, talking to the press on Twitter. Uh, it's the straight up shadow brokers playbook being played against Iran. And we have no clue whether it's somebody internal, whether it's uh, somebody external. I'd love it to be the NSA, but uh, maybe it's GCHQ, maybe an internal guy. And it's just sit back and fire up the popcorn machine because for once it's not the NSA on the receiving end of this treatment. So uh, they they even had a touch of the um, uh, original PLA breach 
where they had information about girlfriends and uh, uh, feeds of that kind uh, uh, that were doxxed. Of course, because if you want to damage the individuals of the institution, you got to go for techniques like that because it uh, helps you uh, get more stuff out of it. Yeah. So I, my guess is the Iranians don't have as many talented people and they can't protect them as well as, as many of the other uh, folks that uh, uh, are engaged in uh, uh, some of these activities. And so this probably hurt them more than it hurts most. Especially since Iran has the problem of if they let their talented potential people go abroad to get an education, odds are they ain't coming back. Yeah, probably right. So PPD-20 was the uh, attempt by the Obama administration to create a mechanism for interagency coordination for cyber attacks of various sorts, particularly by cyber command. And it, it achieved one goal, which I think probably was a goal of some of the participants, which is that it made it almost impossible to launch cyber attacks. Uh, and the uh, Trump administration, in one of their few actual delvings into uh, interagency processes, usually they just tweak uh, the solution, I, uh, changed all of the rules. Um, and uh, Matthew, the latest report suggests that maybe changing all the rules was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Grant Schneider, who is the federal information security officer, he's really the guy in charge of cyber defense uh, at the NSC, at least the one of the few remaining people at NSC that knows something about cyber at he, this he, stage. He, he would be he would be the federal CISO if we had a federal right. CISO. He gave some comments at uh, the INSA conference recently where he talked about how uh, the administration's stripping back of the of all the layers of intricate interagency review that was required uh, to use uh, cyber attack tools has yielded benefits and and of course, one of the things that was reported in the media was in the advance of the 2018 midterm elections, uh, there were reports coming out saying that they were able to take down a Russian troll farm that was yep. intending to interfere in some way with that election. Um, so, you know, obviously, I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think to your point early on, I think the anytime you have an intricate interagency review, I think for many of us that have spent any time in or around the federal government, that's code for do nothing right. and make sure the process prevents anything from happening. So I think that's a good change. When I was when I was uh, uh, doing work on the national security side uh, and the techies who didn't want us to do anything uh, were well represented by the Office of Science and Technology mm -hmm. Policy, or OSTP, we used to say, what does OSTP spell? It spells stop. <laughs> <laughs> Mar-a-Lago. I... I always thought that was overhyped, uh, and now it looks like uh, at least the idea that she had malware on her uh, thumb drive is questionable enough that it's not going to be the basis of criminal charges. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, what's the story there? Uh, we were all talking about how incompetent the EU commission was a few minutes ago. Maybe not so competent for the U.S. government either <laughs> on this one. Uh, this is a bit of an oopsie. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, Ms. Zhang is not walking away from this. You know, her hotel room had five SIM cards, nine USB drives, a signal detector, you know, $7,600 in cash, a, a, you know, a, a means of locating bugs and hidden cameras. Uh, she has intruder 
uh, written all over her. Whether she has a Chinese-backed intruder on her remains to be seen, but uh, I don't think she's going to walk away from this too readily, no matter what the uh, initial oopsies of uh, of her arrest and, and the first bits of the investigation. Yeah, I always thought, you know, look, if the Secret Service stops you, they're going to look at your electronics. If your electronics look funny, of course, they're going to say there looks like malware on there. And uh, just that's just the way this, the Secret Service rolls. They, they are always looking for malware. Uh, uh, and uh, their initial report, uh, the fact that it didn't produce a, uh, an indictment probably doesn't mean very much. Uh, I think she's loose nut and uh, she'll pay uh, for that, uh, but I doubt that she, this is a new um, TTP for uh, uh, the uh, Ministry of State Security in China. Well, if it is a new TTP for them, they better just mothball it right away and not <laughs> not move along because this one didn't work. Sending sending a lady to an event that has been canceled, you know, coming from a friend in Shanghai is just that's. I mean, might as well just put a put a, a sign on your forehead: "Suspicious Chinese person." And be done with it, you know? Yep. Anyway, who wants to bet that the Chinese are busy subsidizing the Mar-a-Lago waitstaff salary anyway? Oh, yeah. There yeah. are a hundred ways Ooh. in. Yes, for sure. Uh, and so uh, this this would be a hundred, the hundred and first, and probably they should have drawn the line at the top hundred. Face recognition software, which I... The left and the NGOs and the media just wants to turn into something toxic. Uh, uh, the New York Times did this long story about how, wow, we we used the cameras in Bryant Park to uh, identify uh, a person walking across Bryant Park uh, uh, by looking at other photos that were available publicly. Isn't that scary how good the uh, face recognition software is? Of course, that sort of cuts against the narrative that, oh, uh, face recognition software is so is scary because it isn't any good, which seems to be Microsoft's view. They've, they've been saying, uh, I think, in a addendum to Office 365 is Virtue Signal uh, 365. Uh, uh, they're saying we won't sell our face recognition software to law enforcement because it's not good enough. Uh, and therefore, uh, we're only going to use it for certain purposes and not for others. Uh, that's where we are on face recognition. I'm not sure I, uh, I can say much more. Uh, Microsoft did say in addition uh, to uh, that they weren't going to sell it to cops, that they thought it ought to be regulated, and they wanted to, to export controls imposed on face recognition software, which is pretty dumb, right? Uh, it, it just says, we're not going to sell it to people. You're going to have to go to China and buy your face recognition software there. Just to be clear, Stuart, when Microsoft says, we don't want to sell it to police because it's not good enough, does that mean that turning your computer on and off doesn't fix whatever the problem is with the Microsoft <laughs> that, software. Uh, yeah, usually it does. That's, uh, you're, Ooh, you're right. snap! <laughs> snap! <laughs> this, is a, this is really interesting, I, I thought. The, the information commissioner is going to restrict social media. It has a whole set of rules for social media for, for minors. Uh, pretty aggressive set of rules. And the UK is going to insist that you produce proof of age in order to get access to porn in the UK. This strikes me, this is just the last straw. This is unacceptable. 
<laughs> the end of a free so, society. Exactly, exactly. You know, when they came for the right, I didn't object, but now. <laughs> In many ways, the two stories are very different. So the one on social media is basically targeting a lot of the deliberately deceptive behaviors and is best described as trying to enforce some reasonable notion of real consent and real transparency for what social media systems do. So it, it was really an elaborate they, set of rules about not nudging kids in particular directions. Yes. And it's, to my mind, a lot of the proposed protections, like make it clear that the like button is about data acquisition and that the like button sees what you read, not just what you like and stuff like that is reasonable and i would like in an ideal world some sort of notice and consent to meaningful consent to everybody there they seem to be using the think of a children as a way of basically sticking the nose under the camel's tent of hey you know some of this behavior is really scummy unethical and if people understood would be rejected so let's try to restrict the behavior at least towards kids and go from there on the theory that those kids will grow up and they'll they they will continue not to do the things that we've all been suckered into doing or more importantly, it gives you the regulatory authority to go, see, it worked with kids. It wasn't a disaster, Facebook. Now we can extend it to everybody. Okay, um, and you're going to defend the uh, the, ban the the age verification for porn? How does, how does that work? You, 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 you give your name and uh, passport to, um, you know, Pornhub and uh, they treat it uh, uh, with due uh, uh, sobriety? <laughs> The age verification is one that I will not defend because it is a abominably dumb idea. Basically, it's name and credit card or something like that. The problem is this creates a hugely attractive database for attackers to go after, and it won't stop kids from getting porn. And it will be used as a way of making the Great Firewall of Cameron even more obnoxious because they already have these default opt-out – or sorry, defaulted opt-in. Um, you have to explicitly opt-out filters on all the internet. And this is just going to be the infrastructure for large-scale censorship in the UK with a huge amount of collateral damage that won't actually stop the porn anyway. Yeah, the uh, VPN sales will go through the roof, though, so you better buy VPN futures uh, in a hurry. Uh, we have managed to get this far without talking about the Mueller report. I'm really proud of uh, everybody. Uh, uh, I think I've persuaded them all that we can say one thing very firmly about the Mueller report, that it confirms everything we ever thought about the president and his critics. Uh, uh, there's no disagreement <laughs> on that point. Um, uh, but there are a couple of cyber uh, points that we ought to touch on. Uh, um, Paul, uh, uh, going dark makes an appearance here. Bitcoin makes an appearance. What's uh, what? What does uh, the Mueller report have to say about those things? Also, election security. I mean, I you know, for those of us who who, who look through look through uh, the world with rose colored cyber glasses, 
the Mueller report was uh, was actually quite informative. Um, it seems clear that uh, the going dark problem played a role in at least part of Mueller's inability to follow all of the evidence that he wanted to, particularly with respect to Manafort and possible connections to Russia. Uh, Manafort uh, destroyed a lot of his data. He also, uh, so did Eric Prince, and uh, he, uh, a lot of the other stuff was through uh, end-to-end encrypted uh, channels that left no record that was available from other sources. So, so that was uh, uh, that was a big problem on the election security uh, side. Uh, it makes clear uh, what we've already all known that you know the states really are not up to the task at this point of keeping their uh, networks secure. It, it didn't uh, point out any particular incidents where where that vulnerability was exploited in a way that should make us concerned, but it certainly makes me uh, worry more and more about the 2020 elections. And then finally, uh, as you pointed out in our discussions, uh, it mean it, it followed at least some of the Bitcoin trails and made clear that Bitcoin is not the uh, panacea for anonymous activity that some of its biggest proponents thought it was. Uh, overall, you know, not the biggest part of the Mueller report next to all the other things that, as you say, confirmed everything we all thought we knew on whichever side of the coin we're on. But, yeah, we have fun to see that that cybersecurity plays a role even in this uh, uh, this avowedly uh, political event. Yeah. Nick, there, there aren't really big surprises uh, here. It's just that... Uh, uh, now everybody's ox is getting gored as as more goes dark, and uh, the guys who were counting on Bitcoin anonymity, including the GRU, uh, uh, have really got to change their opsec if they want to succeed. Except that the thing is, is in some ways the lol nothing matters report on those issues did things that we already knew in the security field. Dread Pirate Roberts learned quite well how easily it is to trace Bitcoin. We've known that end-to-end encrypted apps will keep somebody from seeing what's going on, unless, of course, you get one of the participants to flip and give you the data, and that happened in some of Mueller's cases. So it's useful for the public and the non-CS geeks in our sheltered little world to to see this, though. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And, and um, Paul, I, I will say... Taking the report as a whole, I've been really disappointed that despite the fact that it's clear and and the report uh, makes it even clearer that Russia did a lot of uh, interfering in the election, maybe not as effectively as as some people want to say, you would think that that would lead to a bipartisan effort to make sure it doesn't happen next time because you never know who Zox is going to get gored. Uh, um, and there doesn't seem... People are much more happy fighting with each other over whether this proves that they were always right as opposed to the other side being always right. Um, There surely are some legislative uh, and bipartisan legislative uh, measures that we could be taking to make it harder to pull this off in 2020. I, I agree. I mean, I've been writing about this for a while. It seems to me that election interference is caught up in the partisan a fight about um, about the 
legitimacy of the last election when, as you say, the right answer is we should be worried about the legitimacy of the next election. At this point, we don't even need to be interfered with. We just need to be worried that we've been interfered with for that legitimacy to be called in question by whoever loses. Uh, I am not a fan of federal mandates, but I do think looking around uh, the nation that there is such a high degree of variability in the security of various state election uh, systems from the registration through the databasing to the voting itself, that there's ample room for raising the bar in much the same way we've managed to raise the bar in the electric grid industry uh, without uh, taking it over federally as well. It's not a perfect analogy, but boy, we do need to get our our uh, focus on that or, or it's not going to be comfortable on November 21st, you know, uh, 2021 or 2020, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, and, and for Mark Zuckerberg, uh, being uncomfortable has come sooner even than that. Uh, the uh, FTC is supposedly looking at a, a measure they usually use only for people who are actual crooks who are running companies that may not exist tomorrow, uh, looking at some way to, uh, to make him personally accountable for uh, uh, whatever it is they're planning to do. And, and the rumors are that they're planning to do something pretty dramatic to Facebook over uh, privacy problems, many of which I frankly think are the same problems that we always knew they had, but they became big deals when they hurt Hillary Clinton uh, or were perceived to, to, to hurt her. Uh, there is a great story, uh, or at least in terms of its detail, its kind of scummy origins, uh, looking at all of the Facebook emails that uh, were produced in litigation and then leaked uh, um, pretty systematically, uh, first to the, uh, uh, the UK parliament and then just uh, doxed away. But the analysis of how data plays a role in maintaining the profitability of Facebook is quite remarkable. And it's, it's pretty clearly, it's, it's a classic Silicon Valley story. We've got this platform. Everybody's relying on us to provide this infrastructure. And they're making more money than we are. That can't be right. It's a, it's a very Microsoft-y uh, uh, response. Uh, and then how you address that. Uh, I thought the, the, the story was it took me deeper into the economics of being social media than I had ever been before. Nick, what did you think? Uh, agreed. So a few things. The FTC going after Zuckerberg personally, in some ways, doesn't seem nearly as unusual as I'd expect when I think about it a bit more. Because Facebook's corporate structure yeah, he, designed, he can't be removed, right? He, so the, yes, yeah. it, it, it's, it's designed to ensure that he personally will always have an enormous say in how the company is run. So you can see them saying, uh, uh, well, it, since you've got the enormous say, we want you to be on the hook. Yes, if you take a C or a S corporation, in many ways, Facebook is a S corporation in terms of control. It is controlled by Zuckerberg. The NBC analysis of how Facebook wants to use data, it's it really is that Facebook is not about customers 
Well, it is about customer service. It's that the people's data is not the customer, it's the product. And so Facebook is always looking for ways to monetize that directly and indirectly. What's really interesting is Facebook goes, we will not sell your data to others directly as a major marketing push. And so much of the conversation revolves around how can we effectively sell but not sell? Right. Well, so, it, so look, you know, that's that shows the power of the privacy statement, right? They've, they've, they've said that uh, and they want to snug up to the line without quite going over it. Uh, uh, I, I agree with you. That's sort of what's going on. Uh, but, you know, I'm struck by the fact that uh, there's an inherent tension here between people loathing Facebook and wanting to hurt them and use the privacy tool and what is obvious from all of this uh, uh, correspondence, which is that the best thing that can happen to Facebook is not to be allowed to let other people use this uh, information. It, this is the source of their power. This is the source of the competitive advantage that they have. Uh, and so efforts to insist that data not be sold, not be distributed, are essentially arguments in favor of keeping Google and Facebook at the apex of that uh, particular ecosystem. Except that I think there's worry that as data gets sold, it, you lose control. So you look at what uh, the cell phone companies have revealed with their selling location data. The other factor is that I don't think people truly appreciate just how much and how aggressive Facebook is at data collection. Like they've been accidentally for the past year and a half, downloading everybody's contacts when you create a new account and were foolish enough to enter your email password because they were asking for that for some reason. Yeah, I, look, I, I, the data is it's what they have, right? Uh, uh, the platform is why we give them the data, and the data is what they use to make money as an advertiser, which they've been pretty good at. Uh, uh, but if you're Except asking, that a yeah. lot of the data you are giving them, you don't realize. So say you're looking up something, and this was the case a few years ago before somebody pointed out to this, looking up, say, herpes on the British National Health Service site. There was a like button on it. So this meant that Facebook knew you were reading about herpes. Do people really understand how those data collections work? Google is the same way, especially with the supposedly pseudonymous ad identifiers on DoubleClick, which they can de-anonymize and probably do. Fair enough. I, we're running low on time, so we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks to Matthew Hyman, to Paul Rosenzweig, to Nick Weaver for joining today. Uh, this has been episode 260 of the CyberLaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Please do sec uh, suggest interview guests. Uh, uh, you'll hear less of us and more of the guests uh, if, uh, if you do that, so that's another incentive. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Now three weeks in a row, I've actually tweeted out many of the subjects that we were going to cover on the uh, podcast. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you like them, then I'll um, uh, be more likely to include them in the podcast. Uh, uh, we've gotten a couple of new reviews, and they actually are of a piece. Uh, 
Here's one from JMB046. This podcast is a must for technology lawyers. This is my go-to podcast for technology and law-related issues. Stuart does a great job of orchestrating the discussion and bringing out the fun and interesting bits. Uh, uh, and uh, Lilibet B uh, says, also a must-listen for cyber and law. There are a lot of good tech pods out there, but this is essential listening for those interested in cyber defense and foreign policy. Yeah, yeah, Stuart has a perspective, and it's not mine, but that's how the dialectic works. Uh, sharpen your own argument. Arguments, don't complain about his. I also adore the recurring blockchain episodes, which are coming up very soon on April 29. Uh, uh, so thank you a little bit. Uh, be, uh, you are my target audience, uh, um, tolerant uh, uh, liberals. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, you're the, at least the third that I, we know is listening to the show. So next week, blockchain takes over the podcast. You'll get to hear uh, uh, all things blockchain and nothing uh, Baker. Uh, thanks to Christy Jorge, our producer, Doug Pickett, our audio engineer, uh, Michael Beaver, our assistant and editor. I'm Stuart Baker, host and provocateur. Please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and privacy.